Alright, let's see here. Perhaps we're rolling? Are we rolling? Is it working? Oh, thank god it's working. Okay. Well, hello everyone. Welcome back. We are on to episode 5 here of Dragging the Lake, and as always, my name is Jake. Uh, that rhymed and it sounds cheesy now that I said it out loud, and I will regret that for the rest of the episode, but it's fine. We're moving on. No big deal. Uh, today we got a pretty low-key show, um, another one of those solo episodes that kind of sees me going into some of the things that have shaped my interest as a fan, some things that I think should shape your interest as a fan, uh, and in today's episode we're going to talk about some things that should perhaps negatively uh, impact your, your taste as a fan, and by that I mean hopefully you don't like this shit, because I was forced to listen to it so that you don't have to. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Don't want to waste any time, really. Um, and we'll start off with some of the albums that shaped me as a person, as a man. Um, as, as just a person walking this earth full of anxieties and pleasures and all the other things that I think that I have other than anxieties. Um, and we'll start off with one that a band that I keep coming back to for good reason, and that's Mastodon's Blood Mountain. So you may be wondering, why not Leviathan, right? Because every time somebody wants to talk about Mastodon, they want to be very particular about telling me that Leviathan is their best album. I'm always particular about telling them they're wrong, uh, but it's fair because it has Blood, Mountain, or, uh, Blood and Thunder on it. Which, hey, fucking rules. But Blood Mountain uh, was my introduction to Mastodon, and seeing as I've talked about them on just about every episode, it seems pretty clear uh, by now that they're one of my favorite bands, as normy of a pick as it is. Uh, it's kind of like saying Black Sabbath is so great. It's obvious, because it's true. Um, Blood Mountain was my introduction because of Headbangers Ball, of all things. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if that exists anymore, but... It did at least in, exist in some incarnation when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I remember being in middle school and staying up way too late talking on AOL Instant Messenger to my friends, and in the background I would put on Headbangers Ball on very, very low volume so it didn't wake up my parents. Uh, and I saw the video for The Wolf is Loose, and right then and there I knew, yeah, this shit is for me. Uh, banger of a song great way to start the album. They have a pretty good way about doing that, putting putting a banger right in the front to get the audience hooked. Um, I think that this album is really interesting because it seemed pretty clear that everybody was a bit surprised at what a success Leviathan was, and as is often the case, uh, a sort of sequel was commissioned, because structurally, uh, even sonically in a lot of ways, this is a pretty similar album to Leviathan, but I think this was their attempt to say, well, with Leviathan we just kind of threw this together, let's see what happens when we try to make it more mature. Let's see what happens if we try to grow out a bit, you know? Uh, and they did, and they made an album that is less rough and probably less heavy, uh, actually not probably less heavy, definitely less heavy than Leviathan, uh, but is one that feels a little more mature, feels like they grew as songwriters, um, definitely grew as um, musicians, because I think that this is the album, really, uh, where K 
Kelleher and Hines kind of became the guitar idols that they are now. You know, I, I fully believe that they are in that range of of greatness that you look at, you know, over the years with your Randy Rhodeses and your Dimebag Daryls and, and all those kind of guys that we talk about, little kids hearing and picking up a guitar for the first time. Uh, I really do believe that Brent Hines and Bill Kelleher should probably be in that territory. Uh, and I think we saw that really on this album where it was cemented. Um, I think it's one that is kind of a hinge point for them in their careers. Uh, they, it, there's no like straight line with them necessarily. Um, I think the big weird one in there is Crack the Sky, which we talked about um, on earlier episodes because it's one of my all-time favorite albums, and it's their prog album more so than some of their other stuff, even though I think you could argue most of their stuff is progressive in some sense. Um, but this one is sort of the hinge point because you can hear a bit of everything on here. You know, you can listen to Colony of Birchman, which I believe won a Grammy, uh, and you can hear what they make now. This, like, slightly smoother, more melodic, um, even radio-friendly song that doesn't sacrifice a bit of an edge uh, and something that can appeal to the, the heavier fans like myself. Uh, you can also listen to some of the instrumentals on this album, the instrumental tracks on this album, um, and that's where they sort of flex their chops a bit. Uh, as as guitar players, but it's it's a sort of sampler for them, and it's one that without this, I'm not entirely sure I would have explored the band, and I'm not sure I would have explored uh, any new music for a while because this came out, and uh, you know I was a I was a kid who listened to stuff that came out in the '70s and '80s almost exclusively. Um, so this, this kind of clued me into the idea that maybe there's new music worth listening to. Um, and, you know, there is also some stuff that came out in around that era that is um, maybe not uh, as great, not something that stood the test of time, namely my second album that I was going to talk about as far as my personal, uh, personally significant albums. I'm trying to think of how to put this because I don't want people to think that I think these albums are always very good. Uh, I'm just saying they're important to me. And this one is Issues by Korn. Came out, you know, a little bit before Blood Mountain, um, but still of an era that I was not going to engage with until I had heard uh, a sort of entry into that, that whole milieu uh, and this, I think, was the album that was my entry into that milieu of 90s um, and early 2000s um, new metal, which, of course, everyone loathes, everyone hates it. I've already made the argument multiple times that Slipknot's first album is good. It's very good. Their second album, good. Third album, good. Corn, I don't know. I do not know if I would ever say that anything they've done is good, to be honest with you. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that this album is one that I would argue about either. Uh, as, as, as important as it was to me at the time, and as much as I'm willing to admit that now, uh, having listened to it again, I mostly just find it really interesting. Uh, and I think that it's fair to call it interesting, even if you think it's cringe. Because it is cringe, but the ways in which it is cringe are kind of interesting. 
I believe on, in, in an interview, their guitar players were saying that they wanted their riffs to sound like something that a DJ had remixed, right? Make all these little noises and hit these certain tempos and stuff that makes you feel like it's something that a DJ would have put into the song without the guitar itself. And it works. Is it good? I don't know. Does it work? Yeah, actually. They, they make that succeed. Um, and, and it's that sort of grooviness combined with the cringe that I, I find so interesting. Um, <laughs> this is an album that, um, oddly enough, sees them mature a little bit as musicians because I think they embrace an ambiance that they really had only hinted at before. I think the pervasive sort of darkness of their first few albums was more just them being incredibly angry, anguished individuals, uh, and that sort of bleeding over into their music. But in this one, they really, really know how to set the scene for the audience. And I think that they just sort of matured as artists and they matured as musicians. Uh, as strange as that is, I think they just really figured out how to do what they wanted to do in a way that was more effective than it had been before, even if it's not quite as intense. I mean, I think that Follow the Leader with, of course, the classic um, Freak on a Leash, uh, that's just something that, that's just something you're not going to recreate because part of it is just that it is so messy and so intense that you're just not going to recreate that but with intention. I think that just sort of has to happen. And I think they were past that point where they could uh, summon that sort of primal energy. But what they could do was take all the things that they had learned and try to make you feel as shitty as humanly possible and provide a soundtrack for all of your teenage breakdowns. And buddy, they did it, at least for me. And that says a lot, doesn't it? That, you know, I was born, I want to say the same year that their debut album came out. And Korn has always had this... Uh, fixation, I don't know if fixation is the right word, but th there's a recurring theme of childhood in a lot of their songs, and I think a lot of it, of course, comes back to Jonathan Davis's, um, you know, being as open as he is about being a victim of sexual abuse when he was a child, uh, and the feeling that, you know, you sort of lost a chance at a happy childhood, lost a chance at a normal childhood, whereas now your childhood is sort of defined by this trauma, um, and whether you want it to be or not, because the entire trajectory of your emotional well-being, the way you think, the way that you physically feel, uh, has been sort of shaped and molded by something beyond your choice. And I think that it's that, that fixation on childhood that makes them so relatable to people uh, over the course of a few generations. Because this is an album that came out you know, when I was a small child, not a small child, but I was a child when this, this came out, and I think I was born when their first album came out, and yet when I was, you know, between the ages of 12 and 15, um, I was really moved by this album, and this album did make me feel a little bit less alone, because I think that even as adults, they were so in tune with that sort of specific kind of angst and anguish that it would speak to just about any generation who is willing to give it a fair listen. Now, as I said, it's not necessarily good, so maybe you don't want to give it a listen, but I do think that there is a lot more into that there is a lot more to this than just being new metal 
because I think that Jonathan Davis, especially on this album, actually does have a pretty interesting way of writing about victimhood and being a victim and fear of becoming a victimizer, which is a recurring theme on this album. Um, so if you haven't heard it in a while, again, it might not be good. You may not like it. You're probably not going to like it in the year of our Lord 2022. Um, but it is it is worth at least getting familiar with it, or maybe the lyrics, or just a couple of songs here or there. I promise. There's something to it. Um, speaking of something very much of its time that just still hits for some reason, um, is Killswitch Engage's End of Heartache. Now, this is my last choice for my personal selections. I have some friends who are probably going to listen to this who are probably going to get mad at me for this. I do not know if this album is good. I'll let that sort of sit for a second. I'm sorry. You're probably mad at me if you're hearing this. But I'm not entirely sure if it's good. Um, The mixing is bad. The the actual production quality is not good. Um, The drums feel very thin. The guitars feel a bit thin. The vocals come across quite well, but it's kind of hard to fuck that up when you're dealing with somebody like Howard. Uh, The guy's just got serious pipes. Um, But it's just, there's something so sappy about this that I don't know if it always lands. Um, And I don't know if, if the emotional heft of the album comes across the way that it did in 2004, which was a different time, really. Uh, you know, I think this is a bit of a time capsule album because this was when the sort of hot topic era of metal was really about to kick off, uh, where being, having this big brawny sound with these incredibly vulnerable sounding lyrics, um, to the point of being melodramatic, honestly, uh, was kind of in vogue. And they really hit this sweet mix where the emo kids had something to relate to, uh, the sort of casual listeners could get into because the vocals were just so good. Uh, even the, the actual clean vocals especially were really good. Um, I think the metal kids could get into it to an extent. I mean, this was a huge crossover sort of uh, hit for a lot of people. Uh, but again, I don't... Listening back to it, I don't know if it still holds up quality-wise, but it is a lot of fucking fun. Because, for me at least, uh, I can't listen to this album and not think about being, you know, a teenager and picking up a guitar and really, really wanting to learn all of these songs on my guitar, learn the entire album. And at one point, I probably could play the entire album, uh, because it was just the exact kind of riffs that I really gravitated to. Um, and it's the exact kind of um, bombast, I guess, that would bring in a young metal fan. Um, I have likened it to being like, you know, what if a bunch of scene kids who go to Hot Topics started listening to At The Gates or, um, you know, some of those other Gothenburg bands? You know, I think that that's exactly what this would sound like. And there's no complaining about that because this is actually what got me into the melodic death metal Gothenburg Sweden kind of sound because I listened to all these riffs and I was so into it. And then I go back and listen to some of those like mid-90s death metal albums uh, from Sweden and I realize like, 
holy shit, all they did was take that music and then add some good clean singing to it and pretty much no other change <laughs> um, exactly as melodramatic, exactly as um, over the top, uh, and exactly as riff heavy. Um, and for that reason, I'll never, ever, ever move away from this album because it was such a bellwether for everything that I would grow up to like uh, and in so many different ways. It, it is, I've talked about hinge points a lot, but it really is a hinge point that connects so many things that I like and so many things that I did like. You know, the sort of melodramatic emotion uh, mixed with the riffs, mixed with um, some pretty impressive vocal performances to um, an actual crushing heaviness. Like, I listening to this, I had forgotten, this is a heavy, heavy album. Uh, and it's easy to forget that when you think about the end of Heartache and the fact that uh, one of these songs was actually on the Resident Evil 2 uh, soundtrack. And by that, I mean the movie, not the game. Because the game's good, the movie, not so much. And it's kind of hard to shake that, uh, that this is this is the soundtrack to that movie. Uh, because that is, they are both so very of their time. Um, but still worth going back to, I think, if you were there. If you were there, you'll know. If you weren't there, maybe you can't really pick this up and enjoy it the same way. So, you know, I typically try to find themes with uh, the selections that I make. For, for whatever reason, I didn't really have a theme uh, for the personals, although I think that the latter two uh, issues and the end of Heartache uh, spoke very highly to kind of the place that I was in when I started listening to this kind of music, which is uh, not a good place at all. Uh, otherwise, I don't think I would have been attracted to those albums, but... They did, I did feel a bit of myself in them. I did see a bit of my own sort of, you know, the way I felt in those albums. Um, I think probably more so the Korn album, which we're not going to go into all of my various issues, but, well, God damn it, I said issues. I'm going to, I'm going to not, I'm going to make it a point to not accidentally drop puns um, into this show, but point is, not going to go into everything with me, but it is effective. Uh, I think all three of these albums are effective at what they're trying to do. They're trying to take you somewhere, and they succeed, and that's what it's all about. So, moving on to the essentials, I chose these very specifically, because I know who my guest is going to be on the next show, uh, and he's a guy who's going to talk to us a bit about the, uh, the development of metal before it was metal. So, talking a bit about proto-metal... Uh, heavy metal or heavy rock that um, maybe straddled a borderline that pushed some boundaries. Uh, and I wanted to get some bands that were just barely on the other side of that development. So I wanted to talk about Black Sabbath. I want to talk about Iron Maiden. And I want to talk about Judas Priest. Because when people think of the foundational bands, those are kind of the three pillars, I think, that most people uh, consider to be essential especially going into the late 70s and into the 80s, which is when all three of these albums came out, beginning uh, our list here with uh, Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath. The first album by Black Sabbath featuring Ronnie James Dio, uh, a man who I would follow into war uh, and give him all of my money and just let him lead my life uh, as, as if he were a cult leader. I would join his cult. Um, 
I say that with full sincerity. <laughs> um, this album, I really resisted for a long time because I am such a big fan of the Ozzy, uh, Ozzy band getting all those guys together in the late 60s and then putting out those, those albums they did in the 70s is something that I, I don't really know if you can replicate that sort of dynamic uh, and I don't know if you can replicate the magic of that group, but but what you did get was uh, something wholly new, something wholly um, powerful, uh, something that could stand up to the times. You know, as the as the '80s were were uh, coming around, you started hearing people have, having these sounds coalesce. You know, I, I mentioned the original Sabbath albums were just this sort of miasma where you could pull a whole lot out of and decide what's important. You know, it was the clay that a lot of bands molded with. Uh, this one, you feel like they're a lot more confident. You feel like they're fully formed. They know what they're going for. Uh, and I think Dio was a pretty clear influence there. I mean, this this guy was a veteran musician by the time that he got together with uh, Geezer and Bill and Tony. And um, he knew what he wanted. And they knew that they needed that direction, and I think that what they did was basically make a Dio album with a lot more swing and a lot more bounce. Uh, and you can hear those blues influences, and those jazzy sort of influences of the backing band uh, on this album, which you don't quite get with some of Dio's older stuff, as great as it is. But Dio in the 70s um, does not sound like Dio in Black Sabbath, and Black Sabbath in the 70s does not sound like Black Sabbath with Dio. And I think that's just such a, a miraculously thing where you can be a band, have such incredible chemistry with two separate vocalists. Uh, it's very rare to pull that off because so often you end up just trying to recreate the magic of the original just with somebody who is not quite that good. <laughs> um, and there was no, there is no uh, copying Ozzy. I don't think you would want to copy Ozzy. Um, but if you're Dio, you can stand above the rest. Um, there's real blood in this one, you know? Um, there's real... Uh, there's something really driving about the guitar playing that I think that Iomi seemed more willing to plow ahead uh, in front of the band rather than being, um, I don't know, sometimes a bit lackadaisical. And that's not a knock on Iomi. I just think that his playing was much more deliberate in the 70s. Uh, he was not, it didn't feel like there was as much urgency to his guitar playing, or the, the rhythm section as well, uh, whereas on this one there's a real sense of urgency and there's a real sense of purpose. Uh, it sounds like they knew where they were going and they were ready to go there without making any detours, because uh, that sort of defined a lot of their 70s output is, is that they were just kind of all over the place. Uh, they were always kind of going off on these little tangents and I don't think that you got as much of that in the 80s. I think that they had fully matured as musicians, and I think that Dio came in with such a vision for what he wanted uh, that he had honed over the years in Rainbow and in his own band uh, that what you got was an album that felt a lot more confident, I think, than some of those early Sabbath records, as much as I love them. Um, speaking of maturing, uh, speaking of being more confident uh, and being more streamlined, perhaps. We have Screaming for Vengeance by Judas Priest, another essential album uh, from another favorite band of mine. And uh, I'm going to be talking about Judas Priest probably a lot on this show uh, because I do think that they are that good. And I think that Rob Halford, like Ronnie James Dio, 
would probably follow him to war, uh, probably uh, be in the vanguard of his army. Um, the man is just pure charisma. He is just uh, absolutely captivating on the microphone. That's really what makes it all work. Um, but at this point, I think that Priest was fully... They were fully embracing their identity. And really, that's, I think, the theme of these three albums that I've chosen is essential, is that these are albums where you see a band that has fully embraced who they are, they know what they're trying to do, they've already you know, gone through the, the mess in front of them, they've gone through all of their various influences and all of their various uh, interests and things that they've tinkered with over the years, and they've found the formula. And on this one, they absolutely found the formula. Um, and that's a little bit bluesy, um, a pretty damn heavy, actually, for the time. I mean, this was right before Thrash was really starting to take off, but I think that there's a real heaviness to, to Judas Priest that people overlook because they think of them as more of the classic rock um, variety of metal. Which really is fair because they were coming from that milieu. Um, and I think the early 80s for the bands that were able to stick around and were able to survive the sort of decadence of the late 70s, uh, I think that they came into the 80s pretty confident. I think they came into the 80s um, making the early 80s an era where you saw people find a formula and stick to it. Uh, and I think that sort of became the theme for really the, the 80s entirely is that a lot of bands were finding these new sounds but they were not expanding them they were just sort of honing them um, and I think that Priest did that this album sort of became a blueprint for a lot of what they were wanting to do afterward uh, I think Heaven and Hell by Sabbath you know again that was an album that already had a formula it was just a formula that they were refining uh, and I think that you had other bands like Van Halen and, and uh, the next band I'm going to be talking about, Iron Maiden, who had figured out what they wanted to do and who they wanted to be. And the 80s was a period where they kept honing that and honing that and sharpening it, um, perhaps maybe too much at some times. But even the bands that were new in the 80s, even your Metallicas and your Slayers and your Deaths and your Morbid Angels and... These people who were heavier than the uh, the people who came up in the 70s. The 80s was all about honing their sound. It was not about expanding it. Um, and in a future episode, I want to talk about how the 90s was an era of shocking evolution for the genre, um, for the, or the collection of genres that make up heavy metal, I guess. Um, but the 80s was more about refining rather than exploring. Um, and then I think that then because everybody had refined themselves to death, things needed to get freshened up later. Um, but I digress. What I want to bring it back to now is Iron Maiden. Uh, I, I think it's impossible to talk about Iron Maiden without talking about Judas Priest and vice versa. Um, but they are, they are what happens when a heavy metal fan is more interested in goblins and ghouls and zombies and mummies. Uh, whereas Priest is what happens when a metal fan actually gets laid. Um, if you, you, you really have to pick your poison. Do you want to talk about getting laid, or do you want to talk about zombies and uh, mummies and stuff like that? Because if you want to talk about the latter, you're a Maiden fan. If you want to talk about 
getting laid, you're a priest fan. Now, you can be both, I guess, but that's that's pretty, you know, it's pretty hard to walk that road at the same time. Um, but this album, again, it's it's one of the albums from Maiden that, if you've heard it, you've pretty much heard all of Maiden's albums. Um, I think that Iron Maiden only has, like, two albums that I would consider essential, uh, and it's this one and Number of the Beast, and it's not because they're the only good ones. That's not true. They have a lot of really good albums. Um, but it's because once you've heard Power Slave, uh, once you've heard Number of the Beast, you kind of know what you're in for. Uh, and I picked Power Slave because I thought that it was important to highlight exactly how theatrical um metal could be in this era uh it was it's a perfect example of marrying the cringe with something so cool that it actually works um you know you can't have bruce dickinson's voice and be entirely cringe it's too cool it's too impressive um and so i think that i wanted to bring power slave in and iron maiden in because you have to talk about these bands that gave an identity to this kind of music Um, because before it was a loose collection of influences but I think that when you have you know the originator like Sabbath putting out an album like Heaven and Hell which was just such a confident um, rock solid consistent piece and you have bands like Maiden and Priest who had been around in the 70s uh, and then fully articulated their identity and therefore the identity of the entire genre in many cases uh, in the early 80s, um, you're dealing with some stuff that would have ripple effects until the modern era and you can absolutely see the trajectory of how they got there for a decade before uh, these albums came out. So, you know, I want to save a lot of the discussion for them for next week, but I did want to highlight just the importance of Screaming for Vengeance, of Power Slave, of Heaven and Hell, um, because they're essential albums in the development of this music and the evolution of this music, a period where uh, speciation was really <laughs> uh, becoming a thing, where it was like, oh, this is a new thing now. This is not just hard rock. This is this is its own distinct thing with its own distinct identity and its own distinct themes. Um, and, you know, these were sort of the dividing lines for it. So moving on to segment three, um, you know, a lot of the times this is going to be a segment that maybe I chose a topic that I wanted to get into because I thought it would be fun and interesting. Uh, maybe a guest of mine comes on and gives me an idea for something they want to learn more about or they think I should learn more about, you know, something um, enlightening, something that brings a better understanding of this music that, you know, if you're on this show that you care about so much. And sometimes uh, this segment is about being a sadist, which is how John took this segment to be in our last episode. Uh, And being a masochist, I agreed that uh, that's what this segment is going to be. John gave me three albums to listen to uh, that for one reason or another and to one degree or another are absolute, unbelievable dog shit. Just pure dog shit. Um, And my task was to listen to these. I'm not entirely sure why. I I don't know if he wanted me to, to take anything away from this except for pain. 
Um, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try to take something out of, away from this. So I think it's worth noting, first of all, all three of these albums are by bands that are actually historically very good. Um, you know, I think that these are all albums that were more misguided than anything. Um, they are made by people who are very talented, uh, who are very well respected, who at this point had already proven that they could make great music. Um, but for one reason or another, they were led astray. And maybe they were led astray by the times. Uh, maybe they were led astray by a producer who thought it was time to try something new and cash in. Or they were just led astray because they felt like making something different. And God bless them for making an artistic choice that maybe is off the wall. But boy, were you misguided about how good it was going to be or how you know actually meaningful it was going to be to anybody other than your ego. So to begin with, the uh, great artist who is mis misguided by uh, a producer or somebody hanging around their life who thinks that they can actually squeeze some money out of this, we have Cold Lake by Celtic Frost. Uh, great band, classic band, hugely important band. Uh, if you like death metal at all, then you or black metal really, then you owe Celtic Frost pretty much everything. Um, but Cold Lake is an interesting album because it was it was produced in 1988, uh, toward the end of the um, one of the worst eras for heavy music, which is sort of the hair metal era. Um, and somebody got it in their head that, you know, Celtic Frost, Tom Warrior, I know that you want to end this band. I know you think you've done it all, that you've tapped out all of the reserves of your artistic... Uh, uh, talents and art artistic uh, inspiration, but I have an idea. How about we keep Tom Warrior and then form an entirely new band, and then I'll write all the music for you guys to perform because I think that it's going to get you somewhere. Now, that if that sounds like a bad idea, to have a producer come along and do that with a band that's already well-established and well-respected, but at this point kind of running its course, um, then yes, that is actually a very, very bad idea. Uh, this is Tom Warrior again with nobody from the original band. The music was almost almost entirely put together by a producer uh, in, again, 1988, back when, you know, I was just talking about Power Slave and Screaming for Vengeance and Heaven and Hell in the early 80s and sort of the honing of metal and the sort of speciation of metal of it becoming its own thing and how the 80s was all about finding a sound and refining it well the sound that this album was aiming for had already been done had already been uh, defined and refined uh, and then here they were taking a stab at it and just sort of sleepwalking through the shoes of others um, and it sucks uh, it really, really sucks. It's it is a really poor imitation of hair metal, which already sucks. Um, the sound mixing is devastatingly bad. Um, some of my favorite parts of this album were hearing the vocals tracks layered onto each other, and how none of them fit. Uh, the volumes were all wrong. Uh, there seemed to be feedback on some vocal tracks that were not on other vocal tracks, which got to be extremely disorienting. Um, 
but it's almost a perfectly bad album because it's you're listening to it with a bit of a smile on your face thinking of exactly how of all the all the ways that this is wrong and exactly how it got to be this bad uh is a bit baffling because you'd think at some point somebody would have said something but from all indications it seems like tom warrior was just sort of agreeing to go along with everything and the backing band was probably just there to collect a paycheck um so i will say out of all of them this was probably the least offensive uh listen of of the three partially because of the genre i think hair metal sucks but it it is at least not a like gratingly bad it's not abrasively bad most of the time um but it also was kind of the most enjoyable to listen to because it feels so silly and sometimes that's the best part about bad things is that it's silly um but moving on to something that is silly in another way, but a less enjoyable way. Um, Morbid Angel's uh, reunion album, uh, Elud Divinum Insanus, which is just the dumbest name. Um, and, by day, and I said this was a reunion album. So the band had already gotten back together after years of being apart. Uh, and they had been touring. And this happened a lot in the 2000s with a lot of these original death metal bands that had, you know, spent the 80s refining their sound, becoming legends, then in the 90s maybe growing, trying new things, oftentimes failing, and more often than not burning themselves out in the process. And then they would get back together in the early 2000s or the mid-2000s once they realized, like, holy shit, people actually remember us, people actually still like us. There are younger kids who are getting into this. There are younger bands that formed because of us. So yeah, let's start playing festivals. Let's let's take our show on the road and play all the hits. Um, some of those bands decided to write new material. Morbid Angel is one of them. Uh, David Vincent, the vocalist, um, really kind of one of the defining death metal vocalists. When you think of death metal vocals, there's a good chance that you're thinking of David Vincent or you're thinking about somebody that was influenced by David Vincent. Um, but he got back together with the band for these tours and then they decided let's record an album together for the first time in a long time with the, you know, the old crew, Trey and David. Um, and somehow David came up with this. This is not a death metal album. This honestly sounds more like Ministry than it does Morbid Angel. And if you know anything about me and my tastes, and this is only episode 5, so you only know so much, uh, I think industrial metal fucking sucks. Almost every time. And this is probably the worst example of it that I've ever heard. Um, it is mind-boggling how this came to be. It, it, is, it is an album that is sort of a testament to just how unpredictable artists can be and unpredictable human beings can be because there is no rational explanation for why this fucking thing exists. Um, I am seconds into the intro, which of course they have to have like an, a minute and a half of, of ambient noise and you know, chanting and getting you all geared up for something so spooky. And it sounds so cheap. And it sounds so stupid. And it only gets more stupid. Um, 
David Vincent somehow still likes it, from what I understand. Uh, he defended it when people rightfully said, hey, dude, we haven't heard you at the original band in, I don't know what, like, was it over, t- it was probably over 10 years at that point since they had all made an album together. Why the fuck did you give us this? Uh, and he said, well, hey, it's just uh, not everybody's going to like your, your musical choices. Not everybody's going to like your artistic direction. And it's like, no, nobody, not everybody's going to like it, David. You're right, because sometimes it fucking sucks ass. Um, I'm just, I'm, this was the, this was the hardest one. This was the hardest one to listen to. And, and I think that part of why it's so hard to listen to is that thematically, it's not really that different from their death metal stuff. Lyrically, it's really not that different from their death metal stuff. But death metal is inherently absurd. It is a bunch of mostly teenagers, uh, slamming their instruments as hard and as fast as they possibly can and screeching and bellowing and belching into a microphone. It's silly. It's naturally kind of silly. And it's naturally kind of tongue-in-cheek, I think, when it's at its best. Industrial metal is not quite like that, though. Industrial metal is is of this very early 90s try-hard kind of shit. It's like the movie Seven. It really, really wants to gross you out and make you feel uncomfortable, but if you step back a few paces, you realize that really it's just trying too fucking hard. And so when you're writing lyrics that you would normally put on a death metal album that would be considered silly, and you're putting it through this try-hard lens that you get with industrial metal, you end up with something that is offensively stupid. Listen to the, the Destructos versus Earth song, uh, please, I'm begging you. If you're if you're listening to this, the, the show is almost over. So as soon as it is over, please, please go and listen to that. Um, and also note that when I saw that the song Radicult, yes, Radicult, not Radical, uh, Radicult with a K, want to fucking die. Um, it, when I saw it was almost eight minutes long, I almost literally pulled my hair out. Um, and I'm going to move on to the next album, because at this point I'm just going to talk about all the different ways I reacted to how bad this album was, including messaging John, who is uh, across the ocean from me, therefore there's a five-hour time difference, and I said, hey, I know it's like three in the morning your time, and I hope you're sleeping soundly, but I hope you wake up to the knowledge that I fucking hate you for making me listen to this album. Anyway, on to the last one, Cryptopsy's The Unspoken King. Um... This one's sad. Um, just like Morbid Angel at one point, uh, a great great band putting out something that was really cringe because it was trying to be something else, just like Celtic Frost putting out something that is really cringe because they're trying to be something they're not. Uh, Cryptopsy's The Unspoken King, I think, is in the same vein, except they got so close to being what they should be. That, I think, is what's so difficult about this album, is that they were so close to putting out at least a mediocre Cryptopsy album, but they just made a couple of choices that veered them off into the absolute fucking dregs. Um, I think that one of my favorite things uh, reacting to this album on first listen was that the only thing I could write was, fuck, I am so annoyed. Um, Lord Worm, founding vocalist of, uh, of Cryptopsy, had left the band immediately before this album came out, which is another one of those moments where you think, God, we were so close to getting something good. 
um, you just veered at the last second. Uh, got a new vocalist who decided that he actually wanted to sing, in spite of the fact that it's, what, 2008, and you're still sounding like uh, a post-grunge guy who wishes he was Lane Staley over a death metal album. Um, very interesting decision there. Um, there's really no thought to the vocal passages on this this album, and, you know, John and I talked about how sometimes you can learn more from something that sucks than from something that's good. And I think what I learned listening to this album is that even with the guttural vocals, even with your standard death metal vocals, some thought has to go into where those vocals fit into the song. You know, what pitch am I, am I screaming at? What kind of space am I filling in the song? What am I sliding my vocals between? You know, am I fitting it into this riff in the right way? And there's really no thought to this. It just seems sort of like aimless screaming, aimless bellowing, aimless singing with no regard for what's happening around it. Uh, and it's just disorienting, uh, no matter what they're doing. And I gotta say, um, Elephant in the Room, this was 2008, I believe. I think they tried to make a deathcore album, guys. And uh, I'm a defender of deathcore. I am. I, I happen to like it a great deal, and I think when it's good, it's really good. But hearing a band that was really at their peak in the 90s try to make a deathcore album in 2008 was very much a, you know, Steve Buscemi dressing up like a kid and saying, how do you do, fellow youths, moment. Um, and it really hurt to see that. Um, don't listen to this album. Um, do listen to the Morbid Angel album, do listen to the Celtic Frost album, because they are really, really interestingly bad. Uh, don't listen to this one because it's just bad. There's really nothing. Everything that they're doing here, they have done before and they have done much better. So I'm really ending on a down note here. I should have probably ended with the Morbid Angel album because of just how perplexingly, bafflingly bad it is. Uh, I, or I could have ended with the, the Celtic Frost album because of how kind of humorously bad it is. But instead of ending with one, that just makes me sad. Because it could have been good. And you can hear in every song a moment that tells you, hey, this was almost good, but it ain't. Well, anyway, with that, <laughs> let's move on to a quick preview of next next week. Um, we're going to be joined by my dear friend Greg, uh, who I have known for some years uh, and who is a bit of an encyclopedia on a lot of things to, related to hip-hop, um, but also to um, really that era that brought us into heavy metal. He knows a lot about the pre metal stuff. He knows a lot about the the rock and, and blues era, um, or blues rock era, I should say. Uh, and what he's going to bring to the table is uh, not just whole albums, but some songs here or there. Uh, and I will actually probably put together a nice little playlist for people to follow along before the show comes out, uh, because I think it, I'm very excited for it. I'm, I think it's going to be fun to listen to um, you know, these tracks and these albums with the knowledge that, you know, we can tie this directly into the essential albums that Greg and I will be talking about that I'd spoke about today, 
the we can see the strings that bind uh, I don't know he's probably gonna bring up something by Pink Floyd or something we can see the strings that bind that with Iron Maiden and I hope that those become apparent uh, as next next uh, week's episode ends but for now just uh, think about the horrible albums I subjected myself through to uh, think about other horrible albums that maybe you should make me listen to because I actually kind of enjoy making myself hurt in that way um, and most importantly stay tuned stay keeping up with the Twitter talk to me DM me email me do whatever the whole point of the show is as always to build a sense of community amongst fans uh, and to learn more about each other and learn more about the music uh, and learn more uh, about all of the uh, historical contingencies that bring us to a certain place and to a certain sound um, so again enjoy your week enjoy this episode and I'll see you next time.